Hello, and welcome to the Celebrating Women in Psychedelics podcast, where we shine a spotlight on the important work being done by women in psychedelics. I am your host, Sonia Stringer, and I'll be introducing you to women leading psychedelic businesses, women shaping governance and policy, female therapists and doctors, indigenous leaders, researchers, practitioners, women leading nonprofits, and others who are making very important contributions to the psychedelic renaissance. Through our podcast and online community, we're committed to ensuring women have a strong voice in shaping the future of psychedelics, and we're very excited to have you on this journey with us. As many of us already know, Nixon's so-called war on drugs of the 1970s not only sidelined promising psychedelic research, but since then has disproportionately incarcerated mass numbers of people for simple drug use and possession, especially people of color. What you may not be as familiar with are the specific ways in which the family members of those targeted by the war on drugs have also been impacted by these dated and unfair policies. Our guest today knows too well the price that families pay when the people they love are incarcerated. In her own words, when a parent goes to prison, their family and community goes as well. She's going to share how her father's incarceration shaped her from a young age, how psychedelics were central to her healing journey, the race problem she sees in the psychedelic community, and what specific steps can lead to greater access and healing for people of color wanting to benefit from psychedelic-assisted therapy. We're also going to discuss the inspiring work she's doing through the People of Color Psychedelic Collective, as well as her history with MAPS and the Drug Policy Alliance. I'm excited to share this heartfelt interview, which will expand your understanding of the true impact of the war on drugs in America. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Celebrating Women in Psychedelics. I'm your host, Sonia Stringer, and the title of today's show is The War on Drugs and Psychedelics, One Woman's Path to Healing and Justice. Joining me today is someone I've been looking forward to interviewing for some time, Aoife Tayo Harvey. Aoife Tayo is a trailblazing writer, advocate, and public speaker whose work has been featured in the Huffington Post and on NPR. Her experience of growing up with her father in prison inspired her to get involved with drug policy reform work. In 2013, she received a standing ovation for her presentation at the International Drug Policy Reform Conference in Denver, Colorado, and later joined the Drug Policy Alliance as as a full-time employee. She's also worked closely with Rick Doblin and MAPS and has been a featured panelist at several psychedelic events, including the Research to Reality Global Summit on Psychedelic Assisted Therapy. Aoife Tayo is known for her sharp insights concerning the war on drugs impact on communities of color and is also the founder of the People of Color Psychedelic Collective, which provides education and workshops for people of color interested in psychedelics and ending the war on drugs. And Aoife Tayo, I first heard you speak at the Research to Reality conference. You were on several panels. You are wise beyond your years, and I'm honored to have you here as a guest today. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Sonia. I'm really excited to chat. Well, a lot of what we're discussing today is related to the war on drugs. And I know this is a term that's thrown around a lot, and most people are fairly familiar with the topic. But I thought I'd start off by sharing a few important stats and history regarding the war on drugs, just to provide some context for our discussion today. 
The war on drugs began in 1971 when President Richard Nixon declared drug abuse to be public enemy number one and increased federal funding for drug control agencies and drug treatment efforts. And with the passage of his Controlled Substances Act, psychedelic research ground to a halt as psychedelics were classified as Schedule One substances with no medical value and a high potential for abuse or addiction. This, of course, was a direct contradiction of the research being conducted at the time, which was demonstrating many benefits of psychedelic-assisted therapy for various mental health issues. In 1981, President Ronald Reagan doubled down on this policy by expanding the reach of the drug war, and his focus on criminal punishment over treatment led to a massive increase in incarcerations for nonviolent drug offenses. The mandatory minimums imposed by his policies led to an unequal increase of incarceration rates for nonviolent drug offenders, as well as claims that the war on drugs was a racist institution as it disproportionately targeted Black and Latino communities. According to the National Registry of Exonerations, Black people are 19 times more likely to be convicted of drug crimes than whites, despite the fact that white and Black Americans use illegal drugs at similar rates. Now, the reason that this is relevant to our discussion today is not only did the war on drugs sideline important psychedelic research for over 50 years, but my guest today has a very personal experience related to the war on drugs and its impact on families families and communities. And Ifatayo, I want to start by sharing something I heard you share in another interview, and that is we should begin to listen to the voices of people who have been impacted the most by these damaging and misguided policies. Those of us who aren't as greatly affected should listen to those who are. If the voices of the marginalized are heard, we'd have clearer and more progressive policies. And I couldn't agree more. So Ifatayo, when it comes to the war on drugs, I know you have such a personal experience around that. Your dad was incarcerated when you were quite young. Would you mind sharing just a little bit more about the impact of that on you and your family and even your community? Yes. So my father went to prison when I was a kid. He was sentenced to 15 years for cocaine trafficking. After he went to prison, I was confused because I was a young kid, I was like five years old. And as a five-year-old, you really don't have that much of an understanding of what prison is, except for what you see on TV. You know, prisons where the bad guys go and they're locked up in these cells. There's lots of violence. And so I carried a lot of shame of myself and of my family because my father was in prison. I recall sometimes in elementary school when we would be asked, you know, by our friends or classmates, so what does your mom do? What does your dad do? I would make up different explanations about my dad because I knew that he wasn't a deadbeat. He could not be there for me because he was incarcerated. And I remember one time I actually did tell my friends in school that my dad was in prison and they were shocked and their reactions made it so that I didn't really talk about it ever again. And it wasn't something that me and my family talked about that much either. Because many of us don't have a frame of reference for how to adjust when a loved one goes to prison. Of course, there is a financial impact. My father was involved in the drug trade because he wanted to make a better life for himself and his family. Coming from a country like Jamaica that is 
you know, poor country. A lot of Jamaican immigrants leave the island to find a better life. And that's what my dad was doing, was trying to make a better life for himself and his family. And so my family took a financial hit, but I also took a mental, emotional hit because I already formed attachments with my father. I am very similar to my dad in a lot of ways, personality-wise, and that relationship was taken away from me. And so I was pretty much left with his memory, and we stayed in contact through letters because he was incarcerated in Florida. I grew up in South Carolina. I didn't visit my father when he was incarcerated. And I think that his incarceration made me depressed in a lot of ways, made me sad. When you have that attachment form with your parent and that's taken away from you, it makes it hard for you to develop or understand why that happened. On a community level, my dad, being that he's an immigrant, he had built relationships with folks in South Carolina and Georgia. And when you take someone out of their community and put them into prison, that obviously creates a huge barrier for those relationships to continue. Another thing that people who go to prison lose, not only the time, money, but they also lose those relationships that they have with folks. When and if they're released from prison, it takes a lot to rebuild those relationships. That's something that I experienced with my father, even though he's been out for over a decade, there's still an emotional toll. There's still time that we have to make up for. He missed a lot of formative years in my life and his opportunity to be a father was taken away from him. So we have to relearn those dynamics. And it's kind of weird because I'm 31 now and he's pushing 70, but you know, we have to make up for lost time. And I can imagine as a young girl or even a young boy, reconciling the idea of your parent going to prison, as you said, prison is, quote, where the bad people are, right? But clearly that wasn't the relationship or the experience you had of your father. So that must have been a lot for a child to try to figure out in their own mind and then how you fit into that picture. You shared a story about after your father was released, how you started to rebuild that relationship. Would you share a little bit more about that? It's really inspiring. Yeah. So my dad got out of prison. I was 12 at the time and he was immediately deported back to Jamaica. We started to rebuild our relationship over the phone. By the time I was a teenager, around 16, 17, I started working and I saved up enough money. I bought my own plane ticket because I wanted to meet him. So I spent about a week with my dad in 2008 in Jamaica. And in some ways it was awkward, right? Because I hadn't seen him since I was really young. But for me, it was about not only forgiveness, but figuring out who I was. Because growing up, my mom would always say, you walk like your dad, you act like him. You, <laughs> like so many things about me reminded her of my father. And so I think that trip to Jamaica was about also making sense of myself and who I was and where my family comes from. My dad, we spent a lot of time together just talking and rebuilding that relationship. It was really important for me, too, because I've been disconnected from my Jamaican side, the culture, and my family, too. And so going to Jamaica was also important in that sense to learn the culture and really feel rooted in, in that side of my family. And that's quite a trip to take as a 16-year-old. That's really inspiring. <laughs> you were able to do that, to save the money and actually take yourself there in person. That's great. Well done. Yeah. 
I remember you telling a story, too, of other members of your family being harassed by the police because of your father's incarceration and that your brothers were treated quite differently from some of the people they were with. Would you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, this happened a few years after my dad went away. Me and my mom and one of my sisters, we were actually in New York City visiting and we got a phone call from one of my brothers saying that the cops had just raided the house and put them in handcuffs. They were being accused of something drug related. And at the time, my brother's best friend were our next door neighbors. They're Iranian and half white. And so when the cops came, they looked at one of the neighbor kids and was like, oh, what are you doing here? Like, why are you hanging out with these black kids? Like, you should know better, you know, that kind of thing. I have four brothers that I grew up with and I've witnessed them be profiled by police just by walking down the street. They're told, oh, well, we're looking for a suspect that looks like you. I've witnessed it a number of times. Slowly, as I got older, as I got into my teenage years, I started to see how policing impacts Black youth. Starting at a young age, like 11, even going to public schools in Charleston, we had a lot of police in our schools. And I remember seeing classmates, you know, 13 years old, being handcuffed and slammed to the ground. My mistrust of law enforcement grew even more, not only because of my dad's incarceration, but also seeing my brothers being profiled or being pulled over and told they're driving suspiciously. It reminds you that as a Black person, especially as a Black man, your life is very fragile because you could just be pulled over by the wrong cop and it's over for you. Well, I'm really sorry to hear that. That is a hard and unfair fact of our culture, something many of us wish were not the case. Ifatayo, I'm curious, those experiences that you and your family had, did you know then that you might become an advocate for justice work? Did you have a sense you might get involved in this kind of work or has it been more of a happy accident that you find yourself now in a place to influence drug policy? Yeah, this is a happy accident. First, I had that perspective of, oh, maybe I can join the FBI or foreign service and make the system better. You know, I had that perspective for a while, like staying away from drugs, not drinking. There were some kids in my high school. I remember one kid in particular who died because they were driving under the influence. So for me early on, I was I don't want anything to do with this stuff. I want to stay away from it, you know. I did not expect to be doing this work because I don't know. It's funny how that works out. <laughs> so how did you first get introduced to psychedelics then? And, and what was it like for you to explore that, especially with the history you had around drugs? Well, my first introduction to psychedelics, I would say there's like three separate introductions. My first, starting in middle school, my history class, our final project, we could choose any project. So I did a project on music of the 60s and 70s. And so I, I started seeing the psychedelic culture, but I didn't really understand it. And fast forward to college, a lot of my friends are using Molly. That's when Molly was starting to get big in the college scene. And I still wasn't that interested. I just, I don't know, I just didn't have an interest. And then my junior year, I interned at the Drug Policy Alliance. 
And I started learning about the larger movement and I felt like I found a home there because I never came across people or organization that spoke about drug users, drug sellers in a way that was compassionate and really saying outright, this needs to end. This is ridiculous. This is counterproductive and inhumane. And so I was like, oh man, this is my place. And that's where I wrote my first op-ed. Children of incarcerated parents bear the weight of the war on drugs. And that really opened my eyes to seeing that I was not the only kid who had a parent in prison. Like I knew that, but when you really look at the numbers, you start to realize like, whoa, this is a real phenomenon happening. One in nine black children will have a parent in prison. That's ridiculous, right? So EPA, they ended up inviting me to their conference in Denver. They have this big international drug policy reform conference, but I didn't know it that I was speaking in front of over a thousand people. I had no idea. So I spoke about my father's incarceration and how that impacted me. And in the middle of my speech, I just lost it. I started crying and it was such a cathartic moment for me because saying the words out loud, saying that my dad missed all these pivotal moments, it became real. I just started crying. Afterwards, so many people came up to me and they're like, I was the parent who was incarcerated or my dad was incarcerated too. So it felt very cathartic for me to have my story recognized and held with such care and such a big audience. Afterwards, a few days later at that conference, I went to a panel on end-of-life treatment. And I never heard of of end-of-life treatment with psychedelics. What a lot of people at that conference didn't know was that I was in a major depressive episode. I got formally diagnosed with depression and I'd be given a choice. Like, do you want to get on these meds or not? (laughs) And I felt very desperate at the time because it's my senior year. It's supposed to be a really amazing time and graduating from Smith, which is a really amazing school. And I was just, I was overwhelmed. I didn't know what to do. And that's when I started struggling with suicidal thoughts. As I was listening to the people on this panel talk about folks with terminal illnesses and using LSD, something just clicked for me. Like, I know that I don't have a terminal illness, but This existential anxiety that they're talking about, I relate to. And it's something that I've experienced since I was a kid. And I think it's partly because my father is incarcerated. So in that moment, I said to myself, I want to try mushrooms because some of my friends were doing this stuff at school and I'm in a pretty desperate place right now where I need something to help me. So after the conference is over, I went back to school and told my friends, how do I do mushrooms? (laughs) My friends are very supportive and they gave me a rundown. You should do three and a half grams and you should be in nature. Mushrooms are kind of nasty. So eat them with something and make sure you have a sitter or someone you really trust. So I did it one Saturday morning. It was fall in in Massachusetts and it was beautiful. You know, all the trees are changing colors. And I had a lot of expectations about my journey. I was kind of preparing myself mentally, like, this isn't going to be fun. This is going to be tough. You're going to be crying. And I did purge a bit. And of course I cried. But my journey showed me that life is fragile, But also in life, you can go from crying to laughing really quickly. That's just how life is. And I did that a lot in my journey. I think there's just something healing about that laughter for me because I was so depressed that I hadn't had a laugh in so long. And when you have such a deep, you know, uncontrollable laughter, 
you feel that all throughout your body and it just makes your spirit feel so elevated. That's what I needed at the time to get through my final year at Smith and be reminded of why life is so important and special and beautiful. So that was my first journey with psychedelics. Even then, I still didn't think that I would be doing work around psychedelics. I really appreciate what you shared there about the importance of feeling based on what I saw in your presentation at the Drug Alliance Conference where you got that standing ovation. A lot of that came from your willingness to feel and to share your experience from that place. It was so moving. And it sounds like through your work with psychedelics, you've also embraced a lot of feelings, both positive and negative. So I acknowledge you for that. That's not always an easy thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, radical acceptance is something that my friend who was trip sitting for me, she's a therapist now, but I remember her being like radical acceptance. You just have to accept the good and the bad. And, and that concept, you know, kind of brings me some peace, you know. Definitely. I'm curious, is that the only experience you had with psychedelics or have you had other opportunities to do healing work? <laughs> so that first journey was in 2013 and I've had a number of experiences since. Mushrooms are pretty accessible compared to other psychedelics, but I've also had the opportunity to use LSD, Wachuma, DMT, and I'm thankful that they've been positive experiences. I know a lot of people come into different levels of difficulty, and it's a very real possibility. I don't want to sugarcoat it and make it seem like you're always going to have positive experiences, but for me, I've been lucky to have positive experiences and treated as something to learn from. Definitely. And speaking of happy accidents, it was through a mutual contact, I believe, that you got introduced to Rick Doblin and did some work with MAPS. Would you share a bit more about that? Yeah, it was my colleague, Natalie Ginsberg, who I believe still is at MAPS. Natalie and I met at the Drug Policy Line back when she was at Columbia Social Work School. We interned the at the same time, and we started to build a friendship. And <laughs> I believe we learned a lot from each other because we are from very different backgrounds. But after the internship, we kept in touch, and she knew that I was looking for work, and she introduced me to some of the folks. And at first, I was going for a fundraising position, but then they were like, oh, you could be Rick's assistant. At that time, I didn't really know much of Rick. I knew who he was, but I didn't really know that so many people looked up to him and loved him for his work and just who he is as a person. So I was only at MAPS working with Rick for eight months. That was back in 2015. And ultimately, it wasn't a good fit for me, though I learned a lot from Rick and, and from the rest of the MAPS team, learning about who the key players are in psychedelic research, learning about the potentials and the pitfalls as well. I also got the opportunity to go to a Grateful Dead concert, which is something that I know a lot of people dream of doing. And I only knew one Grateful Dead song, but I had a great time at the concert with Rick and Natalie and the rest of the MAPS team. It felt like a unique organization to work for because Rick is very, I don't want to say laid back, but he's open. He's open to other people's input. So it was different from most other jobs you'll ever work. And so I'll always appreciate that. 
And I'm also happy just to see that they have made some improvements on different fronts since my departure. I know that there's more people of color working at MAPS and they've taken a lot of steps to train therapists of color and also be more inclusive of subjects in their studies. So I'm happy that they've been making progress. And in a way, it's kind of come full circle because at the conference in Toronto, I spoke on a panel with Rick, which is kind of funny. (laughs) Life comes full circle sometimes, huh? Yeah. (laughs) Well, Aoife Tayo, now you're part of another group that is truly inspiring, the People of Color Psychedelic Collective. Would you tell us what inspired you to help create that group and what are you guys up to? I know it's a lot of really good stuff. So after I left MAPS and went back to New York, I started working at Drug Policy Alliance and They were not really prioritizing psychedelics because psychedelics only make up a small amount of the arrest for drug offenses in the U.S. But part of me still wanted to do work with psychedelics because of my own personal experiences. And a lot of our conversations around drug use, it was always about the dysfunction of drug use and not, okay, what's fun about drug use? What's pleasurable? What's enjoyable? And part of me was tired of seeing this dichotomy of like, this is a medical use of a drug versus a recreational use. And I think that there's more fluidity there because like my first experience with mushrooms, some people might see that as recreational, but it was also very healing and powerful for me. At the time, I didn't really think that it changed the trajectory of my life, but it did. And so that's just as healing as, you know, working with a practitioner or working with a clinician. So I wanted to talk about all those things in a space where we would not be locked down by people taking a subject or taking up space to talk about other things. So in 2016, I wrote a piece called Why the Psychedelic Community So White for Symposia. And basically the gist of the piece is like Black people, like you said at the beginning of the podcast, we're 20 times more likely to be criminalized for drug use, despite our rates of use being the same as white folks. So boom, that's why you don't see a lot of us in the psychedelic space because a lot of us have been criminalized for it. And that piece got a lot of traction. People would email me and be like, I want to talk to you because I don't see a lot of people talking about this. So I had a couple phone conversations with some folks and got connected to some folks in D.C. And they created just an informal Zoom call with mostly folks of color, but there are some white allies there. And we were just talking about all the issues with inclusivity and psychedelics, racism and psychedelics. I was like, okay, let's actually do something constructive here. Let's actually focus on us instead of all the other people we complain about all day. So I took the reins, started facilitating this group, and that evolved into us doing projects together. My first project was fundraising for the archive of Marie Fabina in Oaxaca. We partnered with another organization, Cosmos ancestrales visiones and we fundraised ten thousand. and honestly when we fundraised that money we were just like oh wow this really happened <laughs> so after a while i was like okay guys we we need to like start giving ourselves a name and formalizing ourselves as a group and then another one of our early projects was partnering with the dc psychedelic society philly psychedelic society and dismantling patriarchy and psychedelics which was a fun topic and i think it needs to be talked about more 
And then, of course, 2019, we had our conference, Empyrean Conference at the Eaton Hotel in D.C., and then we had a retreat in New Mexico, and all these things were done on a shoestring budget. We didn't have any money. We fundraised $10,000 for our conference. We were kind of just riding a high at the end of 2019, and then, boom, the pandemic hit. We were also in the middle of writing our bylaws, formalizing as a nonprofit. Madeline McElwain from Dance Safe, she volunteered to help us with that process. Now, you know, we already filed our paperwork to get our 501c3 certification. We've done a number of workshops throughout the pandemic online, talking about healing, cultural appropriation, harm reduction. We had one last year on the connections between mezcal and cannabis and mushrooms. And we also received our first grant in 2020 from the Femtheogen Collaborative that we raised close to about $50,000 from that. We've been focusing on using that money that we fundraised to grow and expand our programming. Last year, I was awarded the Soros Justice Fellowship from the Open Society Foundation. That is a huge accomplishment for me because it kind of represents getting more funding and being recognized for my work. But my plan is to build a coalition of organizations and individuals who are practice aligned and want to shape the future of psychedelics and want to end the war on drugs. So that's going to be my focus until 2024. But of course, the rest of my team, we're going to be focused on bringing in more money, expanding our programming, and maybe transitioning into doing more in-person things now that people are more comfortable going out. But it's still up in the air, given <laughs> the state of our world. So we're going to try to keep things hybrid and make it accessible to folks who are, you know, all around the world. Well, congratulations on being awarded that fellowship. That is a big deal and well-deserved. Yeah. Congratulations, too, on all that you've accomplished, even in a few short years. That's really, really impressive. I know you've put together a number of online webinars and workshops and your conference. And when I was reviewing the website for the People of Color Psychedelic Collective, I loved the theme that I saw in there. I saw a line that said, we aim to build our table instead of asking for a seat at another. And it sounds like mm -hmm. you're doing a phenomenal job at networking your community together. And I can see in the future, potentially an opportunity for all the tables to come together. But if there's so much good that can come from getting your community network together and getting people in conversation around these topics that are so important. So congratulations, mm -hmm. it's a big deal. Are you gonna do the conference again anytime soon? We're aiming to do something in 2024. We've been going back and forth because the second episode has been saturated with so many conferences. So I think we're going to do something like a conference, but also something more interactive and engaging than a conference. We're really thinking about what is our desired impact? Because there are just so many conferences nowadays, and I think people are just throwing conferences just to throw them and not really thinking like, okay, how do we want to impact people? What are people gaining from this conference? And how are we actually building a community or a movement that continues to exist even after the conference is over? So you'll probably see something from us in 2024. <laughs> 
I love it. And I also love that you're so thoughtful about it because you're right. There's a lot of events out there and being really clear on your intention and what you want to create through that is so important. So I look forward to hearing about it. I want to go back to the article you mentioned, the article you wrote called Why Psychedelic Community is So White. It did get a lot of attention and... I've heard you comment in the psychedelic community, people will talk about the unfairness of the drug war and how it violates people's autonomy, but they refuse to name racism, ignoring the biggest elephant in the room. By failing to make the implicit explicit, the psychedelic movement excludes people of color, especially black people, from having their voices heard. So tell us a bit more about why it's so important for people to acknowledge that race problem in psychedelics. Well, for a number of reasons, you know, even thinking about recreational use, again, there's that disparity with drug arrest. When we're talking about using psychedelics, you have to understand that for Black people, for people of color, that's always in the back of their mind when using any drug. That if we have a law enforcement interaction, this could easily escalate. You know, it's funny because I recall a memory from that Graceful Dead concert in Chicago that I went to in Mass afterwards you're walking down michigan avenue by millennium park and seeing all these deadheads scattered around and the cops they had a black man in handcuffs i remember my colleagues at master talking about should we do something should we not i remember one of them said like the only black guy at this concert is getting arrested while all these white folks are out here using all these substances and no one's arresting them. And so I think that's part of it, just on the recreational side. But then when you start to talk about psychedelic therapy or working with a practitioner, if issues around racial trauma were to come up in a session, is that practitioner equipped to really deal with there? So talk someone through that. And I think there's been a lot of progress on this front because the therapy is seen as a more legitimate side of psychedelics. But I still think we have a lot of work to do just because our mental health care infrastructure in this country is failing us. We don't have enough therapists trained, right? We don't have enough of a care infrastructure in our country to really sustain the moment that we're in. When you talk about integrating psychedelics into that already broken system, we have to acknowledge that psychedelic therapy is going to take on those cracks in the system as well. And so I think that it's important to remind advocates, practitioners, clinicians that it's not enough to advocate for people to use psychedelics in whatever setting. We have to take it even further than that and say people should not be criminalized for drug use, A, but also we need to build a care infrastructure. And when I say care infrastructure, I mean a structure that supports people that doesn't rely on our legal system, right? And that empowers people to take care of themselves, take care of their community. We rely so much on criminalization when we should be relying on a care infrastructure because a lot of our issues, a lot of what we think of as crime is rooted in poverty. And a lot of these crimes and a lot of mental health issues are caused by people not having their needs met. So I think that we have to address the inequality in this country when we talk about psychedelic therapy. What are we integrating from our own psychedelic journeys and how does that translate 
in our work. So that's why I always bring up the war on drugs, because the less we rely on incarceration and criminalization, the better our world is. And we should be building a world where people can thrive and know that they will receive care at every step of the way in their lifetime. Well, yeah, some really important points there. So I know in addition to being an advocate for better drug policy, you're also a feminist. I heard you speak on a panel entitled The Patriarchy of Psychedelics. How do you see the importance of the role of women in psychedelics, especially women of color? Part of my feminism is understanding that women and children cannot rely on men, the patriarchy, to make a life for themselves. And I think a lot of people forget that 40, 50 years ago, women in some places could not open up a bank account, to not get a loan, then get a job. They were legally allowed to be raped by their husbands. So for me, being a feminist and being in this work is, I guess, reminding people that women's contributions to a lot of things look different than men's in the sense that women, because of our socialization, we are always geared to think about other people outside of ourselves. We're always geared to think about how our ideas, how our actions impact other people. And that's not to say men don't think that way, but a lot of times they're not socialized in the same way. We're socialized to care for people in this pricing ways that sacrifices our own health a lot of times. And so it's important for women to be at the forefront of psychedelics, particularly women of color, because we are the people who do the most with the leak. There's a pay gap and that pay gap is even bigger for Black and Latino women. But a lot of times we're the people who keep our families together. We're the people who keep organizations and companies together. People don't value the work of a secretary or an admin, but that is very important work. And I think something else that a lot of people in the psychedelic community forget that women do the bulk of care work in this country, whether it be child care, caring for aging people, that care work is so integral to psychedelic healing because you have to be able to hold space for a person in this volatile state. And that work is so important because I went to Smith. Smith is the women's college. I was taught that women, when we are in the presence of men, a lot of times we dim ourselves down. We play ourselves a lot smaller and what Smith taught me was that we need to be the loudest people in the room sometimes. <laughs> and our expertise, that socialization experience is being aware of other people's feelings, being in tune with our intuition. Those are very important skills, especially in psychedelic work to be able to hold space for people, group or individuals. And that's something that men can learn from us a little bit better. I guess something I've been thinking about a lot is like a lot of these stories coming out about how men are isolated and lonely and a lot of straight women are opting out of dating and marriage nowadays because men aren't rising to the occasion in terms of like emotional aptitude. And that's partly because of socialization. We've taught men that their feelings don't matter. And to be a man is to ignore your feelings. And so I think that our socialization affects us in many ways, but there can be benefits to seeing the value and those skills that you've gotten from your socialization mm -hmm. as a woman. Well said, great points. And what strikes me is that label strong black woman, that's not by accident. 
so many strong, talented women of color. And it would be really amazing to see more involved in the psychedelic community and leading the psychedelic community. So I look forward to that. If we were to look five, 10 years down the road and we're just imagining what might happen, what would you love to see if people of color could have more influence and more leadership within the psychedelic space? What would be an inspiring vision for you? Yeah. So I wanted to just say one thing about the strong black woman trope, because in the black community, there's a lot of conversation around how that trip can be harmful. But for me, something I've been thinking about lately is how strength isn't to repress or to ignore, but to to feel, to honor those feelings, even the difficult ones. And so I think challenging what our understanding of strength is and what that looks like. And connecting that to your question about the vision that I have, oh man, what I want is for people to be educated and empowered. For me, it's not about the psychedelics. Psychedelics are a tool in the toolbox, right? For healing, for transformation, for grieving. But psychedelics aren't for everyone, right? And so what I want people to see is that a lot of things that don't involve psychedelic substances can be psychedelic. They can be a psychedelic experience. I've done breath work and felt similarly as I have with mushrooms. So yeah, I want people to see my work beyond psychedelics because what it's really about is getting people in touch with pleasure and liberation and getting comfortable with that feeling because our society can be very repressive and we're living through a time now where it's very strange. There's a lot of fascism that's been on the rise. And I think my work matters because it's about stripping away all those things and really advocating for people's right to use these substances, not only psychedelics, but other substances too. I'm a person who wants to see all drugs around the world decriminalized. I don't want to see people go to prison, go to jail, lose their lives because they decide to put a substance in their body. So that's part of my vision is removing criminal penalties for all substance use. And I want people to see psychedelics as a tool to imagine a better way of living, a better way for us to organize our communities and get everyone's needs met because it is possible, right? If our government regularly spends billions of dollars on wars, we can end homelessness tomorrow. That's really what I want people to see is it's not about, okay, psychedelics can heal you. That's great. But how do we use our healing from psychedelics to make the world a better place? I want everybody to feel this feeling of freedom or liberation or just ecstasy, whether it be on psychedelics or just doing some exercise. I don't know. (laughs) There are many tools and many paths to healing for sure. And Mm -hmm. that that is a beautiful vision. Thank you for sharing that. Thank you. So how can people find you and follow you? I know I'm going to be keeping a close watch on you for the years to come (laughs) and continue to be inspired by your work. Would you mind sharing your website and also how people can find out more and support the POCPC? Yes. So my personal website is www.ifetayo.me. And then the collective, our website is www.pocpc.org. And in a few months, we'll be having a open house meeting for folks who are interested in joining. And we'll also be having an informational session on the coalition. So 
stay tuned for that. We're on all social media channels. You can find our social media on our website, pocpc.com or .org. (laughs) Great. Exciting stuff. And we'll make sure the links to all of that are included next to the episode here. Well, Aoife Tayo, it's been great to chat with you today. And I know you mentioned you were from a large family and many of your siblings were very extroverted and outgoing and you were known as the quiet one. Well, I'm glad that you've overcome that and that you're out there using your voice and sharing your experience. You're making such a difference in the world. And I know that's going to continue. Thanks very much for being a guest with us today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. enjoyed talking to you today. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Celebrating Women in Psychedelics podcast. If you like the episode, please hit subscribe and rate us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcast. We also have a free online community where you can meet and network with the guests of the podcast, as well as other women involved in psychedelics from around the world. To find out more, go to celebratingwomenpodcast.com or follow us on Instagram or LinkedIn. Thanks so much and see you next time.